ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. We find the defendant guilty. Then I will take you with me, and you will stay with me forever. There was no audible answer on her part to this, but a new wave of the familiar, the beloved fragrance of her sweet body arose strongly from the valve and filled the whole room. A long time passed in which I had the top end of her coffin embraced in silent reverie. At last I felt that now she wished to go to sleep and it was time for me to leave her. It seemed cruel, however, to close the outer casket, so I left the lid standing open. With a last farewell, sleep sweet and God bless you, I tiptoed out of the room. Hey, howdy, partner. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I hear you say that, it it makes me think of our creepypasta episode. Yeah. The creepypasta changed me <laughs> for the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Your freaking southern accent. I can't. It's, it's a pure Molly classic now. Mm. So good. Sure is. <laughs> um, speaking of classics, though, I mean... It's, so this week is my case, and it's going to kind of be a preview of what Molly and I have plans for Spooky Month, because this case is going to kind of resemble what most call the actual corpse bride. I'm ready. I love that movie. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good movie, right? I just watched it the other day, like uh, straight up. Tim Burton, man. Mm, Johnny Depp, man. <laughs> he could get it. <laughs> Sorry, boyfriend. (laughs) But I'm ready. I'm excited. Let's do this. So before we actually get into The Corpse Bride, I kind of want to kind of shift focus and also give a warning for people. This is going to have some like necrophilia in it, clearly with the name Corpse Bride. You kind of had that, I'm assuming, in your mind already. I mean, we are still a true crime podcast. And I just kind of wanted to take a look back on necrophilia as a whole and and the main parts of history involving around that, just so you can really get a feel for this case. I mean, I don't think a lot of us probably even know that there's a history behind it, so I'm I'm ready. I'm excited. I, I I'm excited, but I shouldn't be excited. I'm ready yeah. to learn. I'm ready to learn. Let's just okay, say that. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm ready to learn. Nice save, Molly. <laughs> so necrophilia was actually considered by the Catholic Church to be neither whoring or bestiality. However, it was considered, and I quote, pollution with a tendency to whore. So in more recent times, necrophilia has been associated with like cannibalism, myths of like vampirism, the the more sinister style of gothic nature, and I'm kind of using air quotes per se, but a good example of like necrophilia per se in like the mythical terms is for example, Dracula. I don't know if you guys think of it like that, but I mean, he's pretty much romanticized by all of his tales, but in reality, he obtains like a feeling of power from his victims, and it's like I had taking, taken something powerful from them, similar to necrophilia. So I don't know if you guys can kind of see where I'm coming with this, but he is literally giving people and, you know, unaliving them, and now he's like, you know, in love or, or creating these undead. Now, the theme of necrophilia has been captured by a couple famous artists. So 
In reality, the classical Sleeping Beauty tales, it kind of embodies like a necrophiliatic, I guess, um, obsession. Yeah, ideation, obsession. Somewhat in that fantasy in which a corpse is restored back to life. Another example is like Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, where it kind of conveys that similar fantasy. And even like heavy metal songs deal with necrophilia. I mean, we've listened to, you know, the Elise Pollard. We've done that case. And it just deals with kind of like the dark, again, gothic scene. It's like adding a sex appeal to death so it's almost it's just like what you said like romanticizing life and death and romanticizing sex after life and I I get where you're I get where you're coming from it it sounds weird to put it in words that are understandable to us as people that don't enjoy that because that's obviously horrific but I I understand like people in culture using it as a part of poetry just to suggest something out of the norm exactly and it does bring for a good story especially if you are an artist and something that you can really work with and in reality I mean a lot of art kind of does portray the stuff that we would never do in real life so I'm not obviously saying like yay for for necrophilia but in reality it's been a part of our history for pretty much till the beginning of time Another good example of necrophilia actually happens to be from Herod the Great. So um, King Herod, 74 BC to like 1 AD, he was a Roman king who built massive projects during his reign, such as like the second temple in Jerusalem. So not to get all like religious on you guys, but it's kind of like the the fortress of Masada. However, he was best known for the Christian gospels as a king who ordered the massacre of the innocents. So this is when Jesus was born. So if you guys don't really know anything much about this time period, he was kind of known as like the royal pervert of like the grossest kind. Now, he was also not very religious. He, he didn't really observe religion as a whole, but he was raised by a Jewish family and he even married into ruling like the Jewish dynasty. It was kind of like tying the knot with another princess to keep his reign, you know. Now, just to let you guys know, I am not a history major. I don't know a lot about this stuff. I just know... Kind of the basics that is more related to the case that I'm really going to talk to you about today, which is, again, the corpse bride. Now, the reason why this is so important to the case is because King Harold's wife was very, very beautiful, and he was crazy about her, but not in the best way. So on one hand, he was passionately in love with her, but on the other hand, he was also very, very jealous. While he loved his wife, she did not return the feelings. Now, it's to my understanding that he actually killed his wife's brother and uncle, and his father killed his wife's father. So it's kind of all over the place. Basically, King Harold just decided to massacre her whole entire family. So after he killed his father-in-law, he decided to embalm his body in a tub of honey. He also had five children. 
together with his wife, which was two girls and three boys. So he was trying to get somebody to take over his reign. So eventually, similar to like Shakespeare's Othello and everything else, of course, tensions just became too much. And he ended up destroying almost everything in his life because of his obsession with his wife cheating or doing something that she shouldn't be doing, having an affair. Now, his wife wasn't the only one that hated him. All of his children also grew up hating him as well. So he eventually had his wife executed. He also had his two older sons executed as well. So if that wasn't bad enough, it gets worse. So despite having been the one to order the execution out, he also started going crazy and felt a lot of guilt and a lot of grief for her death. Some say he also would break into like fits of rage, but also fits of like weeping. And he went into a deep depression because he was unable to let her go. And in reality, when I mean unable to let her go, that's quite literally what I mean. He had his wife's body preserved and kept making love to her corpse for seven years afterwards. Obviously, the necrophilia part is like super just gross. Let's just be real. It's gross. But he just is a very mentally unwell person, like down to being so jealous. You're going to murder your own children and you're going to murder your wife and his, you know, her family down to now it's seeping into your he's a very obsessive, very obsessive, like overly obsessive person. And to even make it worse, just like her father, she was also kept in a tub of honey. So not only was he, you know, like having sexual relations with her body, she's covered in honey this entire time. So this was just kind of like an earlier example of how necrophilia has always been involved in our history, just as a whole. Now this story is going to be more in like the early 1900s. This also involves a man by the name of Dr. Carl Tansler. So have you heard of him at all by chance? Um, it's not ringing a bell, but maybe after more information, you okay. might be familiar. Well, in 1931, Carl fell in love with a patient he was treating for tuberculosis. So this love kind of made him determined to keep his patient alive, which he again attempted to do so in quite the literal terms, similar to King Harold. Some people who've heard this story, they call it a love story or like a true love, you know, fantasy But others, they think that it's just workings of, like, a crazy man who was obsessive, similar to, again, King Harold. So he was actually a German-born radiographer and a self-professed medical practitioner. So he didn't actually go to school to become a doctor. He just claimed he was. He did, however, become obsessed with one of his patients, and this obsession really led him to do some very strange things. Before we get into that, I kind of want to give you a background on our guy, Carl, because it's a little fishy. Carl Tanzler was born on February 8th, 1877. So what is he, Molly? 
He's an Aquarius. Mm -hmm. He would be a mad scientist, man. Straight up Aquarius. Most Aquariuses are fucking mad. You could take it from one. You can take it from one mad Aquarius sitting across (laughs) from me right now. (laughs) Carl actually grew up in Imperial Germany, but he reportedly studied weather patterns in Austria in 1910. This is where he stayed until the end of World War One. However, he did end up immigrating over to the United States in 1926. There isn't much known about his true background because his invented, I guess, um, you know, history for the most part is just super confusing. And it changed so many times to fit the narrative of the person he's talking to. Although he grew up in Germany, he's also claimed to have traveled to India and Australia. He supposedly did electrical work, bought boats, purchased a South Seas island, and began to build a trans-ocean flying plane around the same time as World War I. So in his mind, he's very well-versed. When the war broke out, he alleged that he was jailed by these British authorities for, and I quote, safekeeping and was released at the war's end. So I don't know, there was no background on any of that, but that was just a story he would tell people. And I felt like it was just to make him feel important. I mean, if he's going to lie and say he's a doctor when he's not a doctor and all these wild, extravagant stories about his life, I mean, that's it just is very clear that he's probably a pathological liar and just will say stuff to appease his ego or to, like you said before, manipulate the people around him. Exactly. And we'll kind of get more into like the identities as well. But for the most part, he's just had, again, a very fishy background that I couldn't really tell what is real and what's fake or fantasized. After the war, he decided to return home, and this is when he married and had two children. So both he and his family decided to, again, immigrate to Zephyr Hills, Florida. It wasn't long before Carl decided to abandon his wife after accepting a position as a radiologic technician in Key West, where he worked as a radiology technician at the U.S. Marine Hospital in Key West under the name of Count Carl von Kosel. Like I said before, he did have many names though. So on his German marriage certificate, his name reads as George Carl Tanzel. But on his United States citizen paperwork, it read as Carl Tanzler von Kosel. And on his Florida death certificate, spoiler alert, It's Carl Tanzler. His hospital records, though, when he was signing off on his patients, it read as Carl Tanzler. But he did consider himself to be a count, so it kind of switched on and off. Count Carl Tanzler or just Carl. During his childhood and travels to, again, this really weird claim, uh, apparently he traveled to Italy. And this is where he claims that his dead ancestor visited him. So he had premonitions and he could speak to the dead, he said. And his alleged ancestor, whose name was Countess Anna Costagna von Kosel, appeared in his visions and showed him the face of his one true love, which was a foreign woman with dark 
hair. And when he was a young boy living in Germany, he would often have these visions of this stunning dark-haired woman who was like predestined to be his one true love. So he knew exactly who he was supposed to marry and it was not his wife. It wasn't until a Cuban-American woman named Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos walked into the hospital and the doctor saw his actual dream come true. This 22-year-old beauty really resembled his childhood premonitions, and it was so close that he immediately became infatuated and just convinced himself that their love was meant to be. Now, Maria Elena Milagros de Hoyos actually was kind of well-known as Elena, so that's who, or not who, but what I'm going to be calling her because that was her preferred name. Elena was born on July 31st, 1909, and she was the daughter of a Key West cigar maker named Francisco Pancho Hoyos, and his wife's name was Aurora. So beautiful names all around in that family. Elena had a little bit of a tragic life. She had a sister who died from tuberculosis and a brother-in-law who was electrocuted on a construction site. Elena was married, but she did suffer a miscarriage during her marriage. And because of this, this is when her husband decided to abandon her and move to Miami. So she just was not having the best of luck in life at all. On April 22nd, 1930, while working at the Marine Hospital in Key West, this is where Carl finally met his one true love. Elena was brought to the hospital by her mother for just a regular examination because she wasn't feeling well. He immediately recognized her as this woman of his dreams. She again had the dark hair, was beautiful, and also was considered a foreigner. Additionally, Elena was known as the beauty of Key West, so that's kind of her nickname around town. Unfortunately for Elena and her mother Aurora, the news of her prognosis was not good. In fact, Carl diagnosed her with tuberculosis, which was still a very fatal disease in the early 1900s. So despite the lack of qualifications that Carl needed to treat a TB patient, he was still so determined to save Alina's life and pretty much made up a variety of tonics, elixirs, and medicines an effort to do so. On top of trying to create his own types of medication, he would also smuggle very expensive equipment from the military base home. He would also perform like experimental tonics and just plant extracts just to try and do whatever it took to get her better. Carl actually administered all of these treatments in Elena's family home. And on top of the medicines, he was also giving her x-rays and he had a whole bunch of electrical equipment. It wasn't really stated exactly what it was. But I mean, in today's age, you just kind of know x-rays aren't really gonna do much for TB, but he didn't know. He was a self-proclaimed doctor. Yeah, he's literally acting like a mad scientist. Exactly. Exactly. He was trying to create this illusion that he knew what he was doing. And in his mind, he actually genuinely thought he knew what he was doing. He thought he was doing what's best for Elena. During Carl's time of treating Elena, he also professed his love for her by using numerous gifts and jewelry. 
as well as clothing. So it was more so like, uh, let me treat you, but also let me treat you. Even though she appreciated all of that, she never actually returned like the sentiment. She wasn't feeling Carl at all. It was just more like a, please treat me and do everything you can. And I, appre I appreciate the gesture. And she's being nice. Yeah. And she probably sees him as somebody who's trying to take care of her and doing the best that he can to save her life if things do go really soft with her sickness. So like that's that's kind of a shitty situation to be in too. Especially, I mean, as a woman in the early 1900s, you also don't want to piss off the one man who claims he can help you because if you do, then he's not going to want to help you. And then you're going to die of TB because you decided to not accept his gifts of, you know, affection. Despite his best efforts trying to save her, Elena actually succumbed to her illness in October of 1931. And this left Carl just heartbroken. I mean, he was very obsessed with her, obsessed with taking care of her, obsessed with being with her. He genuinely thought she was the love of his life, even if she didn't feel the same. And it broke him. After her death, he had permission from her family to construct an above-ground tomb, and it was at Key West Cemetery, all in her memory. He insisted on purchasing a super pricey stone in a mausoleum and hired a mortician to prepare her body before locking her inside. On top of insisting to pay and construct this tomb, her mother even allowed Carl to keep a memento of her by having a snippet of her hair. And if you thought that was weird, another bizarre fact was actually that Carl made the only key to the mausoleum and nobody knew that he was the sole key holder. And it was just made for himself. Carl would quickly take advantage of this privilege of being the sole key holder, and it would result in one of the most awful tales of time because he insisted on an airtight casket with an incubator tank full of formaldehyde to prevent decay. It's it's weird that he has all these strange requests. Like I, I know that the parents didn't know about the key, and that makes sense, but the formaldehyde is is a really odd thing but it makes me feel like maybe her family didn't have enough knowledge about maybe the chemicals that they're using or what what he's doing and they weren't able to like see that he was being like very weird yeah exactly kind of like not having the ability to know that this was not normal because i mean it's the early days of preservation and the only you know, heard tales is mummifying somebody in Egypt. So it's different. Carl would visit Elena's grave every night for nearly two years straight. And he reportedly said that Elena's spirit would come to him and would sit by her grave and serenade her with the, her favorite Spanish song. It didn't really say what song that was, but he would constantly just sing to her in, you know, in, in good spirits. He also mentioned that she would often tell him to take her from the grave, and this abruptly stopped after he lost his job for unknown reasons. And he actually did write an autobiography. We'll kind of touch more on that later on in the story, but the autobiography is called The Confessions of Count von Kosel. 
And in chapter five, it's named The Wooing of the Soul. And it's actually describing his feelings during this time. I do have an audio clip of somebody reading parts of this chapter. And I really think that it's going to give you a feel for what he was feeling. And he legitimately wrote all of this. This is all in his own words. It's pretty much a diary of his time visiting Elena. So just to clarify, it's not actually Carl reading this. It's somebody reading it as like an audiobook. So not his real voice, just somebody kind of reliving the moments as if you were on Audible. Every evening at sunset, I went to the little house I had built for her. I didn't do this from a plan or with any specific intention. I just felt drawn to the spot by some magnetic power which always increased toward evening and became quite irresistible when the sun set below the horizon. There were days when I had no intention whatsoever to go, when indeed I had pressing work on my hands. Each time, however, I simply had to drop everything to go to the little house in time for the rendezvous. With the moment I reached the cemetery, I always experienced a sudden relief from the urge, the pressure which had driven me on. I had indeed a date. I felt it. After a brief visit, I usually sat inside the door completely relaxed and as contented as in the daytime I never was. Then I allowed my thoughts to wander, and they were all about my Elena. The troubled past reappeared before the mind's eye like a motion picture reel. At times I felt very tired in the consideration of this past, and then it happened that I fell asleep. Eighteen months after Elena's death had passed in this manner, there came a night when I sat inside the tomb near the metal coffin on a little chair. It had been a sultry day, and I had left the door wide open so that the refreshing coolness of the night could enter. The moist heat, however, was still in the little room, and this was probably the reason why I fell fast asleep. Suddenly I was aroused by a loud, crashing report, as if a cannon had been fired close to my ear. Thus, roughly awakened, I thought for a moment that perhaps... Some mischievous kid had fired a toy pistol to frighten me. But there was nobody around. Having patrolled the grounds outside, I returned into the tomb, and now I noticed by the reflection of the street lights outside that fifty locks which held the metal casket had sprung open. I examined them closely, and it was perfectly clear that they had been sprung with great force, and all at once, and that this must have been the loud report which had aroused me. Standing there in the semi-darkness, I smiled, for I remembered the prankish manner in which the ghost of my ancestor, the Countess Cozelle, had manifested itself to me, smashing my laboratory equipment when I was a youngster. I also remembered how fond Elena always had been of the fun of a practical joke. This breaking of the locks looked very much like Elena to me. Perhaps she thought it funny to jolt her bridegroom in this manner, who had dared to fall asleep in her presence. Now I could clearly hear a tapping or a crackling sound inside, very distant like nails of delicate fingers probing and scratching a metal surface. With spontaneous resolution, I got the keys out of my pocket and quickly opened the remaining locks of the casket, and with some effort I succeeded in lifting the heavy lid. Starlight revealed that the inner coffin was still intact and sealed. But since I felt the necessity for closer examination and was unable to hold up the lid by my strength for any length of time. I looked around for some means to prop it up. I happened to remember a piece of lumber lying around. I got it now. 
lifting the cover once more, I could support it with the log, with enough space in between to squeeze head and shoulders in. I bent my ear to the inner coffin and listened intently. There was no sound, and I removed its lid altogether, putting it on the opposite side in the tomb. I tested every one of the hundred screws of the innermost casket. They were all intact. After screwing off the caps, I tested the top valve of the incubator, which had a filter of sterile cotton. As I took this filter out, a strange and pleasant perfume emanated and spread all over the room. There was no pressure of gas inside. There was only this mysterious smell, which resembled a haymine, fragrant chemical in human blood, and not any manufactured perfume. It was exactly like the healthy and agreeable odor of a young woman's skin on a warm day. It simply was the typical odor which I loved so much of my bride, Elena, and of her hair. After a while, I placed my ear against the open valve, and after a minute or so, I heard her voice very distinctly in soft tones. It sounded so very much alive that instinctively I looked around everywhere to see whether by any chance she was standing somewhere nearby. She wasn't outside the coffin, of course, but unmistakably she spoke from the air inside, and she said these words. You do love me still, don't you? Tell me, am I really dead? Elena, my darling, no, you are not really dead. It's only your body that's asleep, and your spirit is dreaming. Carlos, where am I? You are in a little house, darling, which I have built for you. I built it so you should not be disturbed and be protected in your sleep. Is this, then, your house, too? No, darling, I said. I'm only here to visit you and to wait for you to call me. Minutes passed in which she seemed to think this over, and then she spoke again. I wish you would take me with you to your home. I want to stay with you. With all of my heart, darling, I will take you with me, if needs be, to the end of the world. She gave no answer to this, at least not an audible answer. But it came to me as a divination that her lips kept moving down there and said something to me which I understood. That was why, after a while, I said aloud, Yes, darling, I will do exactly as you wish. So it's very odd to me that I was thinking that whole time while listening to it is it's just very clear that he has a fascination with necrophilia Mm -hmm. but the thing with him in particular is that he likes to make it more poetic like in the words that he's using he's trying to make it sound like love and poetry when in actuality like he's committing a a, an act of like gross like I I mean I don't want to say anything bad because it's her body but like she's not here anymore she's not alive anymore she didn't even show interest in you when you were alive and now you're trying to romanticize this and give yourself an excuse to be near her corpse exactly and using words like arousal probe incubator like he's romanticizing her death and and making it out to be like you're still alive it's just your body that is sleeping like no she passed on so maybe you need to move on he's just using these words to make it's like to justify his actions and his behavior honestly and again this is straight up written by carl himself in his autobiography it was just read by someone who i actually found on youtube the username is c Augustine. Um, He has like a couple thousand followers. So if you do want to hear more of his, you know, his book is called The Confessions of Count Von Kalsol. 
This is just chapter five, so you can only imagine what the other chapters sound like. And he does a great job of recreating and, and giving his autobiography life. It seriously sounds like he is talking. It felt so Edgar Allan Poe to me when I exactly. was listening to it. Yeah, exactly. Elena's family did actually consider his drastic change in behavior to be very strange, but they couldn't imagine any reasoning behind it. So for them, it was kind of like, maybe you're grieving, but we don't know. So we kind of just will leave it alone in a way. However, in 1933, this is back in April, Carl decided to remove Elena's body from the mausoleum and he sneaks into the cemetery with a toy wagon, removes her corpse so that way she can be housed in his own home. His reasoning behind this was because he wanted to, and I quote, take care of her. She is actually two years deceased and Carl was left with maintaining her corpse. And that sounds so wrong saying it out loud. But, I mean, he did this because he needed to. And he actually put her in an old airplane that he repurposed into a makeshift medical laboratory. So that's kind of his way of recreating her body, almost. Now, he did do a lot of do-it-yourself tricks to kind of keep her body from decaying. I'm going to just give you a trigger warning. Some of it is very gruesome and like, what the fuck? And others, it's kind of like, holy fuck. I would have never even imagined somebody doing this to a body. Now, he would plaster this, like, clay on her face. When her eyes began to decay, he gave her glass eyes to maintain the integrity of her eye shape. He used wire from a piano to attach her bones together. He stuffed her torso with rags in an attempt to preserve the original form. He also covered her scalp with bits of her own real hair. So as each strand fell out, he would reattach it back on and would cover her in copious amounts of perfumes, flowers, disinfectants, removes any maggots that would come along, and any type of preserving agents to keep the rotting odor kind of away. He would also apply mortician's wax to Elena's face in effort to keep her, and I quote, alive. Carl also had Elena's corpse wrapped in a dress, gloves, jewelry, and even placed the body in his own bed. In fact, he slept with her corpse every night in their marital bed, and practice necrophilia. Now, he never admitted to having sexual relations after death, but his autobiography really just kind of went into details. And there's a little bit more to what he did downstairs. On top of sleeping with Elena, he also would enjoy dinners. He would dance together have, you know, dinner by fireside. He would do pretty much everything with her body for seven years straight. The entire town would talk about how he had this new woman but never met her 
and they kind of had their doubts on her either being real or they were kind of assuming that he did take Alina's body. The reason for this was because they found Carl just buying women's clothing and perfume so many times and there was a lot of rumors that were swirling around because of this odd behavior and they also remember his frequent visits to the mausoleum but then wondered why he stopped going. So none of it kind of really added up and that's why they the whole town pretty much had questions. On top of that, there was also one local boy's account of witnessing Dr. Carl dancing with what appeared to be a, and I quote, giant doll. Elena's family did begin to suspect that something was off, so her sister showed up at Carl's home in 1940. And of course, this is when the jig was up. She found what she believed was the life-size remake of her departed sister. So, of course, she called authorities and they quickly determined that this doll was, in fact, Elena herself. He was arrested for, and I quote, wantonly and maliciously destroying a grave and removing a body without authorization. An autopsy of the body also revealed more of Carl's work. So this included a paper tube inserted between her legs, forming a makeshift area where he didn't admit to committing any necrophiliac acts, but today that would still be classified as rape. So a piece of paper just like a full like a roll of paper like a paper tube like kind of think of it like your toilet rolls like your toilet paper rolls that's kind of what was inserted into her like vaginal canal and it was to keep the shape intact so I mean you're still inserting something and that's the classification of rape you are inserting an object into a body and that's what he did There was a psychiatric evaluation and it determined that Carl was in fact competent enough to stand trial, although some reports do state that his ultimate plans involved flying Elena, and I quote, high into the stratosphere so that radiation from outer space could penetrate her tissues and restore life to somewhat a solemnate form. That doesn't even make sense. I I feel like he was already very malicious and already... I mean, he was deemed competent enough to stand trial, but I feel like he was malingering almost to just really avoid avoid his actions. I was going to say, it, to me, it just sounds like more fluff around the bad things that you're doing. It's more, well, you see, my brain and the way it works is that, you know, I was going to bring her back to life one day. Isn't that enough for you people? Like, that's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like he's just trying to fluff in what he does and give himself a reason for his behavior. Yeah, like, I'm such a great doctor that I have all these plans to, you know, bring someone back to life because I can do it and I'm a great doctor. And in reality, if I can just have the resources, time and money to send her up to space, that's the only thing that I need now because I've already done all the work. After the preliminary hearing, this was held on October 9th, 1940, and this is in Monroe County Courthouse in Key West. 
Carl was held to answering for his charges, and he received a little bit of compassion during his trial. So some of them just kind of viewed him as like a hopeless romantic, but very eccentric. Despite his efforts, the statute of limitations have expired for the crime he was accused of committing, and it left him free and clear. He was never charged. Now, something for me that didn't make sense when researching this case is, I don't know why, but Elena's body was actually placed on display at a local funeral home. And this is where anywhere from like six to 8,000 people came to see her corpse for themselves. I feel like this was because he had done a decent job at doing that. I really don't like feeling like I'm saying that he did good but I feel like that was the beginning of the embalming era and they needed like public support to show what embalming does yeah and on top of that probably they haven't seen anything like that at that time they haven't seen that type of work I don't like saying work like you said it's it's very awkward it's very hard to to put these into words that aren't weird but if he did something that was scientifically not common for the time, people need to look and study, and that's probably why they did that. Exactly. So not excusing his actions whatsoever, but also during the time, it was just new. Nobody knew what to expect because they've never seen it before. After this public display, Carl, for some reason, asked if he can have Elena's body back afterwards. Like, what? The audacity? I know. However, common sense, of course, <laughs> prevailed, and they told him no. Instead, Elena was reburied in a secret, unmarked grave, so that way she can just avoid another, like, toy wagon field trip, per se, because they didn't want her body to be re-stolen again, especially knowing his obsession with her. And this was actually at the request of Elena's family. This pissed Carl off and he actually set a bomb off at the site where Elena's mausoleum was as a way to show the authorities what you know the malicious destroying a grave would really look like dude he is I mean the the parents have all the right to be like that's devastating that's mm -hmm. that is like beyond comprehend like to us this I mean to anybody this is a very disturbing case and like super just uncomprehensible but if you could just put yourself in the position where that's your loved one like there's nothing that's going to ever make you feel comfortable ever again you're going to exactly. constantly feel uncomfortable because that is so heinous so they had the, an entire right to hide her body from him Exactly. And to really think like it's been seven years, you know, it's been seven fucking years and now they're reliving her death again. They're seeing her body being pretty much like destroyed, but also preserved at the same time. And it would be really hard to see a loved one being the center of attention in, in the eyes of, you know, science, you know, that would be so hard to relive I absolutely agree with what the family did. Now, Carl goes on to live another 12 years alone, but in 1944, he moved to Pascal County, Florida, and this is where he wrote that autobiography that appeared in 1947, 
Again, it's called The Lost Diary of Count von Kossel. He moved closer to where his original wife was, which in turn helped and supported him in his years later. So she still took him back. He died in his home in 1952. And in his final diary entry, he wrote, and I quote, Human jealousy has robbed me of the body of my Elena, yet divine happiness is flowing through me for she has survived death. Forever and ever she is with me, end quote. He was discovered three weeks after his passing near a life-size death mask, which was in the shape of Elena. So he was on the floor pretty much like holding something that looked very similar to Elena's face. Now I'm going to kind of leave you off with this. Some say that he actually found Elena's corpse, dug her up, and that death mask was actually Elena's replastered face. There's no truth to that. It's just speculation. But honestly, I wouldn't put it past him. This is like, it's almost like it's not real, but it's, but it feels so dark that you're like, this is so real. But like, I just, uh, it's just uncomfortable, dude. That's yeah. uncomfortable. And it is kind of, cause I don't feel bad for him whatsoever. Like some of the people in his trial or whatever you want to call it, if it's a trial or not, like felt sad and sorry for him. Mm-hmm. But it's like, how do you get past just like that crazy obsession that's just unhealthy like that's it's because in my opinion if he loved her that much maybe desecrating her body after she had passed for years and years is a more respectful thing to her than what he did to her I agree and it's almost like his actions are very inexcusable I could understand the heartbreak But if you're willing to go that, like, it's not even an extra mile. You took an extra whole ass leap to insanity. You felt that you were doing what was best and you truly thought that you were bringing her to life and that she was talking to you and you lived this whole life as a lie. And I just like, I I, I am just going to wrap it up from here because I'm just speechless. Yeah, same. I know it didn't really involve a murder. I thought I would switch it up, but it was very interesting and I just had to share it with you guys. It's just as dark. It's dark. It's one of those where it's like, it's so much that you can't believe it's true, but how could you make it up? Exactly. Exactly. Well, thanks for telling me. I feel gross. (laughs) Same. I feel Uh, extra gross because I've been researching this for like two weeks, dude. So... (laughs) All right. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week if you want to come back. (laughs) Sorry, guys.